And joining us now is the radio play-by-play announcer of the Nashville Predators, Pete Weber. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Pete, a longtime uh, announcer for the Predators. And uh, I've known you for a little over a year or so now. Again, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast, the WQ Hockey Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you, guys. And uh, I look forward to conversations like this. Much like another guy does these a lot, a guy named Mike Emmerich. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Everyone, and he actually yeah, everyone misses uh, him, did especially this year. Recently. Yep. We exchanged it, texts yesterday because I oh, sent nice. him a picture of the Fort Wayne Comets from years ago, which oh, was the team that really go. attracted him to the game to begin with. There you go. You got that right. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, again, it's it like, uh, you know, our, our Mike here uh, said uh, he'll be sorely missed this season, but. Um, you know, it, it, you know, it's always good to hear from Doc. He's a, a friend of ours as well, and uh, always good to hear about him and how, he, how he's doing. So, uh, first and foremost, um, you know, what you know, speaking about Doc Emmerich and everything, but also for you, growing up, who's your inspiration to become a broadcaster, Pete? I'd have to say that nice little, uh, and I don't have it any longer, but there was a great Zenith tabletop radio. I grew up in West Central Illinois, between Peoria and the Quad Cities, so I. And in those days, the 50s and 60s, virtually every sports team was carried on a 50,000-watt, usually clear channel station. So I could bring in so many since sports was my passion. But I'd have to say, listening as a 7-, 8-year-old, I was always following Stan Musial and the Cardinals, so I was attracted to KMOX. And I heard these two gentlemen, Harry Carey and Jack Buck, obviously having (laughs) so much fun doing what they were doing. Later... I found out they got paid for doing that. Boy, what a combination that is. You're doing something you love and you love, get paid yeah. for it. It's, it that means uh, the slash through the equals, not a job, right? So that's what uh, attracted me initially. But I was going across, the, I was listening to uh, WCCO in the Twin Cities, uh, Twins and, and Vikings games, uh, Halsey Hall, and those gentlemen doing those games. Even WTMJ Milwaukee, and this will this will age me because it was Milwaukee Braves games back in oh, those wow. days before they moved to Atlanta in '66. Uh, in St. Louis as well, Jack Buck was actually the first voice of the hockey St. Louis Blues. It was the next year they wow. brought Dan Kelly down from Canada to do those games. So I heard Ernie Harwell doing the Tigers. I heard, but Lloyd Pettit doing the Chicago Blackhawks was just a, an incredible inspiration to me listening to how he brought the emotion of the game to his broadcast. And then later on, I come to Nashville, lo and behold, our farm club, and still to this day, the Milwaukee Admirals, though when we started, they were in the International Hockey League, not the AHL as they are now. And who was the owner of, the, of that Milwaukee Admirals club? Lloyd Pettit and his wife. So at training camp, I would get to sort of be the poodle sitting at the knee of Lloyd Pettit, getting all of his old stories in, because even when he was doing the Blackhawks, he was being limoed down from Milwaukee to the old Chicago stadium to do his games. So there was a great connection there with Milwaukee and the old stories. And, uh, you know, I can still hear him going, you know, Bobby Hole down the left wing side, he shoots and scores. And that was the sort of thing that really – and. You heard yeah. the living, breathing, and shouting building 
that Chicago Stadium was in those days. And uh, that was just incredible to me. I'm sure it absolutely it was, uh, you know, back then. And I think it's safe to say you could probably compare it to what Nashville has been like the last several years uh, as their atmosphere has been unbelievable. And Mike, I, I want to uh, segue to you and your question yeah. for Pete here. Um, you know, go ahead with your question about right. that uh, incredible 2017 cup, uh, cup run. It was, and it's not just that. It was that fact that, like, it was kind of a smaller market team that you never really saw in there. That's what made me attracted so much to Nashville and just this fan base and everyone just just getting in on uh, everything Nashville was doing. And to me, I want to ask you, what was some of your, like, favorite memories from that year, just from the playoffs or the season itself? (laughs) It's really, it all blends together in many ways. And there was the year before that where I thought this could really be something. Mm-hmm. And that was in 2016 uh, game four against the San Jose sharks. And it goes into triple overtime. Number one, we started the game for television at eight 45 central time. Mm-hmm. So you're in triple overtime. We are past 1 AM as the game is coming to its conclusion. And I was thinking of Steve Levy, with this multiple overtime game going on and wondering where Darren Pang and Steve Levy were at that particular point in time. But then uh, Mike Fisher scored the game winner at like one Oh six in the morning and go back to San Jose, all even up in the series, ultimately losing that series uh, in uh, seven games, but still that was the idea. And the year before that year is also was when the, the all-star game was here. And the All-Star yeah, game right. turned downtown into like hockey's version of Woodstock. Mm-hmm. We didn't have Maxi Asger's farm, perhaps, but we had that whole campus of about four uh, intersecting city blocks working together. And it was music on the outside, hockey on the inside, and just a swarm of people. And I think that's when it really began to take hold. And this is coming after 2007. It looked like the team might be moved by a guy who had made his fortune in cell phones. Right. There you go. <laughs> so again, in all in all that uh, atmosphere, again, like we were talking about, um, you know, like Chicago back in the, in the good days for them. And uh, it was electrifying. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember I did ask you uh, when I first talked with you about a year or two ago, um, and what was it like as a broadcasting experience? Um, during the Stanley Cup Finals, you, you were talking about the radio decimals and being so loud you couldn't even really hear yourself think. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I was trying to find if I had my decibel meter out here in handy, but I was, measure, <laughs> I was measuring uh, both what it was like in the playoffs in Chicago and here. And upstairs, where I broadcast from, we mm-hmm. were pushing 120 decibels. Now, that is... And I, not that I was pushing it. That's what the noise level right, was right. like yeah. <laughs> up there. Uh, and that's wow. equivalent to a jet engine being in your driveway uh, and, and generating all of that. So, and so what is it like down lower where it's really loud? Yeah. So I got another decibel meter from my wife and it was po- uh, poised around 130. So uh, it's really like, what they have done here is take Southeastern Conference football fans and move them inside to chant that way for hockey. Mm-hmm. And that, <laughs> the noise, I have to be very honest with you here. I'm glad I wear broadcast headphones. That probably oh, yeah. saves me from some ear damage 
And and here's the other thing for our radio engineer, he doesn't need to use any effects really. It all comes in through our microphones. So wow. I, in a way that makes it easier for him. But then remember, I'm coming from doing also in the summer times minor league baseball, and I was sometimes where you could hear what every fan was saying in the stands at a minor league baseball game <laughs> compared to the 17,113 at Bridgestone Arena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, um, that must have been truly something. Uh, so speaking about Nashville, though, like how did you even end up getting there? Uh, you know, I, I know, like you said, that um, you starting in your early days that uh, you grew a lot of inspiration from from Jack Buck and uh you know and the cardinals and stan Musial, um and you eventually work your way into uh nashville for the predators play-by-play radio announcer yeah okay here it was uh i was traveling into nashville for 10 years in the summers doing buffalo bisons baseball and they were in the same league with the nashville sounds the american association which the name exists but that league as it was we all know minor league baseball has yeah. been torn asunder but so i came here for three or four trips per summer depending on what the schedule rotation Mm -hmm. was that year so i became somewhat familiar with the people here and i knew that at that point in time they had echl team here that was playing down an old municipal auditorium which was about 180 feet by uh, 83 feet wide for their rink and uh at one point they didn't have glass they had like chicken wire up along the sides So uh, they had guys like Trevor Job, big-time scorer here. They also had a goaltender named Mano Rayon, who my broadcast partner here, Terry Crisp, coached with the Tampa Bay Lightning when she made one save on Brendan Shanahan and got a $50,000, I think it was an Opeachy, or maybe it was an upper-deck card deal uh, for that one great shot. Uh, So then I was upstairs in my home in Buffalo, and uh, very sophisticated at this point in time, my home office, I had the prodigy, uh, computer service online there with maybe a maybe a 400 baud modem so in other words stuff that we couldn't do this with right now mm-hmm. because it wouldn't be enough bandwidth but all of a sudden there came a story in the spring of 97 that the nhl was awarding provisional franchises and they had to go on from there mm-hmm. to atlanta nashville minneapolis st paul and columbus ohio and my wife's family had moved from Columbus to East Tennessee in the 80s. And I said, to Claudia, what, what do you think this would be like for us at the holidays if we were in Nashville and only had to go over to Knoxville as opposed to the 11 or 12 hours it might take to get ourselves down from Buffalo to Knoxville? So she said, yeah, that's a great idea. So I was able to locate the founding owner of the team, Craig Leopold, on there in Racine, Wisconsin, and FedExed my stuff to him the next day and then kept following up for the next year. And finally, by uh, August of 98, what the puck was first going to drop, well, for an exhibition games in September of 98, I was uh, under contract to move here. I was fortunate in that regard. Uh, The man named Director of Communications here had been in PR with the Buffalo Sabres when I was doing their games and their cable hosting, Jerry Helper, and he was the one who thought that Terry Crisp and I would have pretty good chemistry, knowing us both. He knew Terry from when Jerry was with the Tampa Bay Lightning, and Terry was their mm-hmm. first coach. So that's really kind of how all that came together. And it's safe nice. to say that you guys have really formed that uh, great chemistry ever since then. <laughs> yeah, well, as a matter of fact, his, his uh, sister-in-law, 
is such a great Maple Leafs fan, and we had to try to console her after they blew that uh, 5-1 lead the other yeah, night I did against see the that. Toronto Maple Leafs. And I just uh, texted out again this morning, the rematch is tonight, so let's be careful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mike, go ahead with your next question. I know you have Actually, one. I was going to go back to what I was saying before, but just kind of this year in the NHL um, with no fans, do you think that kind of not so much this that just feel different when you're, say, home with Nashville versus what you saw like oh, yeah. really rowdy and everything. Do you think they kind of miss that as kind of a way to get them going into games at times? There's no question. Now we've had about 2000 to 2,500 fans. Okay. The last several home games. And there is a um, highly contested lottery system mm -hmm. to get into that group of 2000 to 2,500 fans. So uh, they very much miss it. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, and to see what we got to the postponements in Dallas earlier this week, mm -hmm. where they allow about 4,500 fans in. And what was it? It was so crazy mm -hmm. when we resumed play uh, in January, where we had Arizona leading the league in an average attendance. And uh, wow. that's because <laughs> they didn't have the restrictions. Right. right. That their makes local sense. governments yeah. that we have had elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And it's also curious for me in Tampa, and now here we are, Tampa's in our division yeah. now with all the reconstructing, reconfigurations that uh, they decided not to have anybody in at the outset while they are playing host to the two years ago NBA champion Toronto Raptors playing their games in the very mm -hmm. same building. So everybody is scrambling. Uh, we know that our schedules are in pencil, not in ink, because we have, yeah. and that's happened for us this week too. And I believe that our two postponements in Dallas for Monday and Tuesday, not yet rescheduled, at least what I've seen online here this morning, mm -hmm. um, those are the first of the postponements. And there have been over 30 of them that are not yeah. COVID-related. This is weather and or yeah. FEMA-related <laughs> anything else. Right. Yeah, which is, again, just hard to believe. You, you would assume that it's something COVID-related, but, I mean, it's kind of a good news, bad news situation where, again, it's good news that it's not COVID, but still, yeah. of course, bad news because it's just more rescheduling. And yet, in a way, it is COVID-related because electricity has probably yeah. spoiled, lack of same, has probably spoiled a bunch of the uh, vaccines in Texas oh, yeah. because of the storage difficulties and the loss That's of power. True. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that. So it kind of all fits in one yeah. umbrella. Yeah, but I think we can kind of transition a bit here. But the reason why we thought you came on because – since the off season, Jeff and I have been doing these uh, mini series on different teams doing deep yes. dives on each of them. So this time we're on Nashville. So we thought, okay. why not get Let's you do our on deep here? dive? <laughs> yes. So okay. um, I actually had a question just on because uh, it seems like uh, Nashville is pretty busy this kind of off season, making a couple moves here and there. What do you think so far of what you've seen this year has been like the biggest move and like the biggest key move for them going forward? I the biggest move. Okay. Uh, probably just trying to get guys on the roster who make the team tougher to play against. So I'd say the first of those was probably defenseman Mark Borvietsky coming down from the Ottawa Senators, who really does make it uh, uncomfortable to go to the front of the net. I'll just put it that way. And uh, but then there's guys like uh, Richardson coming on to play a checking line center. Uh, elevating Matthew Olivier. And now, here's Matthew Olivier. And you say, well, he's a Quebec kid, right? Well, yes, basically. 
but his father was playing for the Mississippi Seawolves in the ECHL. So we have, I believe, our first native of Biloxi, Mississippi, playing in the NHL right now. And he is very difficult that. to play against. But right now, he's, he's been called the Biloxi Bull on our broadcast. But <laughs> he is difficult to play against. And if you don't believe me, ask Luke Shen, who had a pretty good battle with him after opening faceoff a few weeks ago. But so many of these guys are on the injured list. That includes Ryan Johansson. Yep. I, uh, yeah. Matthias Ekholm has a, uh, been a very steady defenseman here. He's on the injured list. Ryan Johansson may return by this weekend. A series coming up in Columbus Thursday, Saturday. If not then, next week uh, in Detroit against the Red Wings again. So we'll see how that works out. But I think when you look at the record, you can say not much truly has worked out to this right. point in time. They are below, uh, and I hate to get deep in analytics here, but they're below expected goals for. Right. Uh, and I think the big reason for that is the shots they generate have not been going on net. Okay. I like to simplify yeah, certainly... that as much as I can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we Which do actually, that. if you look at some of their games in a little bit that I've kind of looked and kind of researching it, it looks like you've had a couple like close games here where it's like if you had a couple like bounces go your way, maybe these outcomes could be a little different. Yeah, in my old days of chatting post-game with Barry Trotz, the phrase puck luck would come up. And There uh, it is. One of the dangerous phrases for a broadcaster, puck luck. I want to be careful to uh, enunciate that as (laughs) as we go ahead. But uh, the same thing that we had uh, with Coach John Hines the other morning. He was talking Mm -hmm. about Yakov Yakov Trenin, yeah, and he was going, uh, you know, He's a real, and I said, shift disturber. Yes, that's the phrase, shift disturber, when he goes out there. Yeah, and speaking about uh, Yakov Trenin, I honestly, I just, again, for those fans who aren't necessarily that uh, honed in on the Natural Predators, you know, they know Ryan Johansson, uh, they know uh, Luke Coonan, you know, Mikhail Granlin, Victor Arvison, Matt Sheen, Phil Forsberg. Pecorine, but one of the few yeah. players I feel like not enough fans around the league know about is Yakov Trena. What, in your opinion, makes Trena such an effective young player? He's got very good hands from in tight. And I've seen him in combination going back to when he got his chances last year. He played a lot with Matt Duchesne. Duchesne would put the puck <laughs> on his stick in an advantageous position and he would score. And then the other usage of his mitts. I think some people will probably recall last season, a game with the Boston Bruins where he buckled the big man, Zdeno Chara. I've never seen Chara uh, so adversely affected by someone else's punch, but Trennan got him on the so-called, or is it a mythical button? I don't think so. Uh, But uh, he hit him right on the button there. And when you stagger the big man, uh, that brings a lot. You know, of you're doing yeah. something right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> kind of like we just had what the 31st anniversary of the upset of uh, Mike Tyson at the Tokyo Dome. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Just like that big old <laughs> Buster mm-hmm. Douglas, the pride of Columbus, Ohio, <laughs> the best puncher from Columbus before Jody Shelley came along. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there actually was a great. Uh, speaking about Jody Shelley, there was a great feature article about him on uh, the Athletic. I saw. So I yes. uh, definitely recommend checking that out at some point for those who have not read it. Um, yeah. So, and uh, Mike, uh, you want to go ahead with your next question there? Uh, let's see. Oh yeah. So pretty much you've had this coaching change that happened about like a year ago to John Hines from Peter Laviolette. Mm-hmm. And 
realistically you haven't had like a full season just because last season was cut short and then yeah. you've had you pretty much had to jump into the playoffs and then come into this season with no like training camp or anything but in the little bit that you've seen from him how have you seen this team now with Hines versus when you had Laviolette running the team as a head coach Peter Laviolette is always thinking offense John Hines is at the other end of the rink more and I think he also simplified the team's uh, defensive zone coverage and because going down the stretch with Peter Laviolette and I here here's analytics again but I think the high danger scoring chances mm-hmm. against either goaltender whether it be Pecorino or UC Saros were much higher under Peter Laviolette because we we were playing a zone defensive scheme then now there are man to man now it's much more zone take care of an area here if you can and I think that has reduced things quite a bit, but I guess you'd say you can't see that so much from results at this point of the schedule. Right. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think that's tough and fair to say. And, you know, speaking about again the record, you mentioned it. It's uh, you know below five hundred. They're currently six nine and out. They're seventh in the central. Yeah. Uh, what do you personally think? You know, for the best of, uh, that you're able to tell us, uh, what do you think needs to change in order for the Predators to get back into the running for a playoff spot? to be much more effective offensively than they have been. And I, I really think that would also help the defense. Uh, if you could, I mean, this team has not had a lead going to the third period yet this season. Wow. That's hard to fathom after this many games. And, and this it, it really is. <laughs> uh, so that, that is, and they've had poor starts. They've had, I mean, I even joked with coach Hines the other morning. I said, are you just going to tell the guys that, as the game begins, it's the third period. So have that obvious sense of urgency that you have displayed in the third periods and these comebacks. And he said, yeah, I wish I could get that across. Yeah. And, and again, like, I, I think it also comes down to, um, like you mentioned and, and uh, talked about a little bit earlier there, Pete, uh, the fact that there are so many key players like Ryan Johansson, uh, Mateus Eckholm, Brad Richardson, Matthew uh, Oliver and uh, you know on the IR and, and key depth players and just key players like that in your lineup and they're out for some time you know that obviously doesn't help and hopefully once they come back in the lineup that will make a, a better impact yeah with that I think we've learned the intelligence of the league <clears throat> starting out with the taxi squads so you had a yes. much larger roster from which to work mm-hmm. and move guys in or move guys out and uh, that has helped, I think, uh, tremendously. You think it kind of Absolutely. hurt that you didn't have a preseason or like a preseason game or offs or like that kind of training camp before the season started, like before jumping into it? Or do you think it would have still had maybe the same potential result? I think probably the same. I mean, but it's all theoretical, okay. all hypothetical. Right, right, we can't really tell. And nobody else had it either. The, the, actually, the teams I'm sorry is for are because we rushed into the schedule were the seven teams that did not play right. postseason series last year who were supposed to have an additional week mm-hmm. of camp. Yeah. And I think they got an additional two or three days. Yeah. So, so coming back from no uh, in-game activity since the middle of March to that, that is really jumping on a moving train. Right. <laughs> I think that's the understanding of the year right there. <laughs> yeah. That must have been tough. Yeah. Um, Mike, do you have any other uh, quick questions here for Pete? 
Uh, not really. Uh, my only other thing was that maybe just with John Hines, just on that blue line, maybe that helps with your coaching because I felt like since your cup run, you've had maybe one of the better blue lines in all of hockey. And I yep. feel like is that potentially a way uh, and as well as offensively that can get your guys going again to maybe get your uh, results in your favor versus what you've seen so far. Yeah. Because aside from Philip Forsberg, most of the offense has been generated from the blue line. Really? And uh, yeah. And Roman Yossi, I don't know how he does it. Uh, okay. He was Norris trophy winner. So we have to acknowledge that this right. last year, but he gets up ice. <clears throat> excuse me. He will go behind the other team's net at least two or three times a game and still not get caught up ice. Somehow or another, he gets back. How he does it, I don't know, other than tremendous speed and also probably the instinct to, to, as to when to get back, right. uh, which I think is, is very much a, a big part of his being. So that is uh, that would be nice, yes. Right. Or maybe make sure you don't have so much pressure on your defense so by the end of the game it's not so much on them. Right. So, Right. Then, their you, minutes are high, are high, shall we say, very intense minutes, right. as opposed to, say, to someone playing on the third and fourth lines mm-hmm. who can go full out during their period of time, whereas when we get to the third period, Roman Yossi has already been going full out right. for much of the game. Yeah, and, and that's certainly, you know, if uh, if you got all of that going for you, then then hopefully, you know, <laughs> guys can see more more positive results. <laughs> yes. And yes. but again, as we know, hockey is a team sport. And um, my uh, final quick question here for you here, Pete, is, uh, I, you know, and I hate to go this whole interview without getting to know more about the first round pick of the 2020 NHL draft for the Nashville Predators. I'm sure Predators fans everywhere are dying to hear more about <laughs> Yaroslav Askarov, yes. um, who ha- had a little bit of a rough uh, world juniors. He definitely did show his flexibility and his athleticism. Um, speaking more about him, though, so he, again, was selected 11th overall to uh, remind people in the 2020 NHL draft. Uh, he became just the 14th goalie in NHL history to get drafted in the first round. Uh, how soon do you think Askarov will play in the NHL? And do you think Pecorine will still be around by the time he breaks in to the uh, NHL? That latter <clears throat> might be the best question of them all uh, because Pekka's contract runs out this season. Yeah. Uh, but it seems to me from listening to general manager, David Poyle, he would like to resign Pekka and that might be a, a good insurance policy for an Askarov coming in. Uh, mm-hmm. And really, I think in the World Juniors, he only had one bad game, one off game. Yeah. And, I, and I think we could allow him that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's still young. He's still <laughs> developing. So he's oh, allowed. yeah. Yeah. And, and he's, what, 18, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it seem now like the goaltending has moved from Quebec to Finland mm-hmm. and now east to Russia? That's yeah. kind of like where oh, the, yeah. the camp and development of goaltenders have gone. <laughs> As long as you are a minimum 6-2. I, I don't think, uh, and Pekka, of course, is gargantuan. And, and when uh, at one point in time, <clears throat> the Predators had like 13 feet of goaltender available to them. Uh, no longer UC Saros does not exactly right. add up to 13 feet with Pekka. <laughs> but uh, scouts don't seem to even yeah. want to look at a goaltender smaller than 6 feet 2 inches tall. 
uh, or shall we say somewhere along the lines of what 1.9 meters. Uh, look at it that way. That is uh, the development or the, uh, shall we say, the findings of goaltenders. And excuse me for various device noises here, but the findings here uh, are that such that Askarov was a surprise to many, but I also always know that, uh, you know, because Peck is last year of his contract was coming up, that if they had what they considered at what 11, a, a true blue chip prospect that they might indeed go there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not too sure what his contractual situation is now in Russia, if he has one more year there or not, but even if he does have one more year, that potentially can't be negotiated away. Right. Yeah. Yeah, as we all know, uh, in the you know in Russia specifically, it can be very very difficult to get a highly talented Russian player, um, you know, over there to the United States. So hopefully, not as difficult as it soon. was right. when I was with the Sabers in '89, and uh, Don Luce was risking his life driving around to get Alex McGillney. Uh, I was just going to say you States. were there during the McGillney situation. Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, back oh, then man. they even thought his name was Mogulney. Uh, so that's uh, <laughs> that, that's the way they were. T- I could send you audio of his opening mm-hmm. press conference. And uh, Jerry Meehan was the general manager at the time. Yep. And uh, how happy they were to be, to be able to get him out of there. And there was a great NHL Network documentary on that whole thing yeah. that ran last year. Mm-hmm. Tremendous story. Tremendous story. And then Alex comes Absolutely. over and he is uh, he is afraid to fly. And in the NHL. And so. Ironically enough, where does he end up as a general manager in the KHL? An eight-hour flight away from Moscow uh, as he goes over in Siberia. So, wow. But the Sabres (laughs) had to get drivers for him to go to the northeastern cities for a while until they could, you know, break that fear of his. And obviously, I I think it's broken now. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's certainly fair to say, Mm -hmm. Pete. Well, again, thank you so much for jumping on our podcast today. Uh, This has been Pete Weber. And by the way, he was the 2019 NSMA, the Nashville uh, National Sports Media Association, Tennessee Sportscaster of the Year. How does it feel to have that honor? To be here and having moved in here in the late 90s, where football dominates and has dominated for many years, to have a hockey guy do it, that in itself to me is a tremendous honor there you go well, there you go very well <laughs> said pete again thank you so much for jumping yes. on our podcast today it's thank been you, a true pleasure and, and i uh, hope you have good we'll weather think- where you guys are right now you're not in any winter peril are you uh, not no, at the moment not no. that i know of. at the moment good good <laughs> yeah, answer who knows? at the moment <laughs> <laughs> but well, having again, been 20 years so in buffalo uh yeah. i know what it's right like. right <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Stay safe, Mm -hmm. and uh, we'll be listening to your uh, broadcasts in. Thank you very much. And in pencil, I will be on the air again Thursday night from Nashville calling a game from Columbus. All right. That has been Pete Weber of the Nashville Predators. Thank you, Pete. (laughs) Thank you, Pete. You're most welcome, gentlemen. All right.